Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 102. And let me tell you, if you are a fan of the late great macho man Randy Savage, then I have a treat for you because this week my guest is John Finkel, the author of the upcoming. ECW Press published biography of Randy Savage, Macho Man, The Untamed, Unbelievable Life of Randy Savage. We'll be talking about the life and career of Randy Savage, as well as the book, coming up very soon. A couple things I want to get to before that. Of course, a lot of people have been asking me if I've seen The Iron Claw, so I want to give a summary response. Yes, yes, I have. And I have many thoughts about it. I overall enjoyed it. I have a lot of points and things that I want to talk about. And I will be talking about my plan is to be able to talk about it on next week's episode, where I plan to have film critic, filmmaker, and lifelong wrestling fan, BJ Colangelo, who was present for the advanced screening of the movie in Texas. I'm going to have her here to talk about it. Um, The interview has not been conducted yet, but my plan is to do so between now and next episode, so you can stay tuned for that. Also want to mention a couple of other things. Inside the Ropes, issue number 40, is available now. It's got Will Ospreay on the cover, and it has the Inside the Ropes Top 50, the top 50 wrestlers in the business to which I contributed this year, so you're going to want to check that out. Get it at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. And finally, a little update on Irresistible Force, the life and times of Gorilla Monsoon. Um, The holidays, as it does for a lot of us, right? The holidays put a little crimp in my productivity, but that's okay because family always comes first. So things slowed down just a little bit, but I'm still hard at work on chapter four of the book, which focuses on Gorilla's years at Ithaca College when he was just plain old Bob Morella and his outstanding amateur wrestling career, both in college, uh, in the NCAA tournament, and beyond that, trying out for the Pan Am Games, the AAU tournament. Lots of interesting stuff in there, in that chapter, especially if that particular part of his career is something you're very curious about. I also have planned for later this month, it is in the works, I am hoping to visit out in western New Jersey. I'm going to be visiting the family of Gorilla Monsoon, his daughter Valerie, his widow Maureen, We are working to make that happen, possibly the last weekend of the month. If it does happen, I will keep you appraised of how it all went. Now, having said all that, let's get to the conversation at hand. My talk with John Finkel, the author of Macho Man, The Untamed, Unbelievable Life of Randy Savage. 
Okay, so it's my pleasure this week to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle a fellow wrestling author who is being published by ECW Press. So I'm excited to have him on here. He's a, an author in general who's written extensively on the subjects, uh, the subject of sports. Some of his books include The Athlete, Greatness, Grace, and the Unprecedented Life of Charlie Ward, as well as um, 1996, A Biography, and Hoops Heist, Seattle, the Sonics, and How a Stolen Team's Legacy Gave Rise to the NBA's Secret Empire. Those are some titles. He also has uh, the online newsletter uh, Books and Biceps, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But the main reason that he's here is because of the new book that is completed. It's coming out next year in April. You can pre-order it now. It is called Macho Man, The Life of Randy Savage. And I'm also proud to say that I was interviewed for this book as well. So please welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, John Finkel. John, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's the untamed, unbelievable life of Randy Savage is the uh, is the sub. So we are uh, we are happy to be here. Thank you. All right. Yeah. You know, it's funny, but I guess they, they must love the adjective unbelievable over at ECW Press because um, my chic book was the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original chic. <laughs> I have found that publishers love on anything unprecedented, unbelievable you know they, they like to throw all those things in there and i'm guilty of it I, as you were reading i am a big subhead subtitle fan i think mm -hmm. uh i like the the slammer of the front one word or so and then you know a, a nice descriptives to kind of bring in each different part of the audience um my we went through a lot obviously for macho and then uh untamed was the only word i was glued to i was like this guy his whole life was untamed. Like if we're going to use a word, it's just untamed life, but really it's unbelievable with the baseball and the wrestling and his family history and all that, which we can cover. But uh, yes. What's also unbelievable though. And I, I know there are reasons for this, but just the fact that there's never been a book like this before, how is that even possible? I don't know. I was so happy. Like <laughs> we, you know, I, I came up diehard wrestling fan, diehard sports fan. And I spent much of my early career writing for sports magazines and fitness magazines, uh, largely interviewing athletes, uh, doing books on athletes. And I always had in my head, like, I just always want to do a Macho Man book. And I remember when um, the big Andre the Giant biography came out, whatever, years ago, and then the documentary on HBO based on the book came out. Um, I was like, man, you know, there's still like this guy's untouched. I mean, Hogan's still, I mean, he has his autobiography and he's never, he's omnipresent. So like, very, you know, part of me feels like the best biographies have to have a sense of nostalgia. It's very, I think it's sometimes a lot of times I'd say they people rush into a biography of like someone at the height or just after the height of their fame. And it's like, let us miss this person for a little bit, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And so I was thrilled no one had tackled it. And uh, I, I had seared it on ECW early to, to be the ones to put it out with our, their, their kind of rich wrestling history. And I was just like, I got, I got to do this book, but as we can talk about, I, I wanted to make sure Lanny, you know, who was around when I started was involved. Otherwise I just didn't feel like, you know, it could do it justice. Also, I think too, um, with, with a lot of these wrestling books, cause I did uh, the biography of the Sheik, as I said, right now I'm working on the biography of Gorilla Monsoon, Irresistible Force. And it's right. kind of like, uh, I know everybody loves the autobiographies and those are kind of like the wrestling books that really created this whole wrestling book craze to begin yeah. with. But I really think, 
and I don't know, maybe I'm biased because I'm writing books like this, but the third person kind of outside independent type of assessment of somebody's life. That's really the best kind of biography. I find it's not as much like, cause the, you know, the wrestlers are going to try to put themselves over and give their version of things. And that's whatever more power to them, but there's nothing like a, an outsider perspective writing about somebody else's life. I think that's really where you get the best version of that story. I am with you a thousand percent. I learned this lesson uh, with an actual project that I did where I realized the whole time it should have been a biography. So I've, I've spent uh, a bunch of time in my career early, in my career bouncing back book wise with doing autobiographies where being the, you know, as an author, you're the you know, superstar with John Finkel or, you know, and John Finkel. Uh, and one of the biggest ones that I did early in my career was Mean Joe Green's autobiography. Um, now, he'd been in several Steelers books that were not, you know, bestsellers because of the Steelers following. He did the NFL Life documentary. So if you're an NFL fan, there were a lot of places to learn about Mean Joe Green. Um, but none of them had ever focused on like his life up to like that first Super Bowl, really. They all kind of just kind of spent 30 seconds on, oh, Mean Joe Green. But he had a pretty interesting life. You know, he went to North Texas. He wasn't drafted. You know, he wasn't uh, highly recruited anywhere. Uh, North Texas never even played in a bowl game, and he still became an All-American. The Steelers stunk when he got there. He didn't want to play there, and then he turned out to be who he was. So I met with him to do his autobiography, and it was great. He was one of my favorite people ever to work with. But in doing the writing the autobiography, um, you know, I was sitting with him. We I used to call it Tuesdays with me and Joe. Every Tuesday at his house for an hour, for three or four months, just going over his life and career. And he put me in touch with you know his teammates. So I'm talking to Lynn Swan and Franco Harris and Terry Bradshaw, all these amazing people, but it's an autobiography just to kind of get a flesh it out. But I couldn't put it all in there or any of it, really. It has to come from him telling the story. So a lot of it was able to clarify or, you know, so-and-so said this, but then I said that type of thing. Uh, and I realized, and again, I think the book came out great. If you're a diehard Steelers fan, you'll probably really enjoy the learning about him. But I've been, it just nags to me to this day that what that could have been, a hundred thousand word everybody's first impression of this guy, all the teams he played for in the, you know, against the Cowboys and all those seller teams. I couldn't include any anecdote of like the first time somebody got mauled by mean Joe green. Right. And that, <laughs> so since then I have not done any autobiographies. Well, also the other thing you run into, and I'm sure you had this happen with the Randy Savage book is because I know it happened to me with the chic book and things is I had to be very upfront and transparent. And what I like to do is, if there's conflicting versions of a story, you know, because in my in our cases, we're writing about people that are gone, you know. Yeah. If there's different versions, rather than just say, oh, I this is what happened. I, I'm very forward. Like, look, we're not 100 percent sure what happened here. This is what this person says happened. Yes. This is what that person says happened. This is the most likely scenario, blah, blah, blah. But <clears throat> I'm not going to just, you know, kind of ignore credible sources right. and pick and choose. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I like to, in the Macho book and specifically, and I did a basically a huge, a huge history of the Seattle Supersonics and I did Charlie Ward's biography where people, as you know, their memories in general suck beyond belief. Mm -hmm. um, you will get three teammates on the same football field talking about the same play and the weather was different. The down was different. Who made the tackle was different. You can get three basketball players who were in the same game. They could all tell you they had a different thing for lunch. Uh, who got thrown out was a different player. As soon as you get after like maybe 18 months from a major incident in people's lives, they just start filling in holes with, with details. So to what you just said, absolutely, especially with Macho and wrestlers, I found even more so because they're business is storytelling. There's discrepancies everywhere. 
Um, so I always walk the reader through what possibly, you know, I think that's part of the fun of storytelling is like, I'll tell a whole thing and go, and now here's what the other team, you know, the other side said, or, you know, here's the way that Jerry Lawler portrayed this particular incident. His, here's his team. And here's what they were saying on that. Or in, in some cases, um, you know, for Macho, because he had a real baseball career, uh, there's box scores, right? So he told these stories about baseball <laughs> later in life where I was like, you're going through the actual box scores. And I'm like, easy, Randy. <laughs> that is not... <laughs> it sounds cool in a, in a, you know, in a baseball booth with the Reds in 1992, or, you know, when you're sitting doing an interview with WWE for a retrospective in 94, but uh, that's not what happened in 1972. Um, and so it's kind of, I, I think that's kind of, if you're, if you're enjoying it and you're not just trying to be like a, a buzzkill, you can write the, here is the greatest version of this story that never happened that he always tells that you may have even heard. And then jump backwards and go, but here's what the yeah, you know, here's what the evidence says or whatever. Right. You can even fully acknowledge this is the way that he would tell the story. You know, I had that happen with Sheik. I had that happen with um his military record. I think we might have talked about this where yeah. I didn't want to like knock him down or anything, but I felt an obligation to say what really happened. I mean, the way he described himself to other people you know you would think that he was george Patton or something uh, you, you know but yeah. he was a 19 year old kid who arrived in europe about three weeks before the germans surrendered so i mean there's a certain yeah you know, there was <laughs> yeah. A, some embellishment that went on he did drive a tank you know yeah. but it's but it's interesting to cut through that with wrestling my god it's I can I can only imagine what you went through. I mean, I, I I'm assuming you you spoke to Jerry Lawler because you mentioned him. Yeah. So like well, with these, yeah. with Macho, the signature with Macho, his name Macho Man. Right. There are he is told in the book he tells three different completely different versions of how he got the name. Didn't he get it in, while he was in Georgia wrestling in Georgia? I think he got it. Well, I, I don't want to ruin through the oh, book. Okay. Sorry. Got no. <laughs> it. No. No. It's fine to go through it, but like. One of the versions he tells, I'll tell this one, he, which he told in one of the WWE documentaries, and I, I talked to Lanny about, is that you know he got in a bunch of fights when he was with which he when he was in baseball, which is somewhat true. He got beaned a few times, and they were they were in in the you know the newspaper of the you know Pensacola Times from whatever from the minor leagues. He did get beaned and had some fights. There were even quotes afterwards from the guy, the beat writers covering minor league baseball about it. And he goes and says in this interview, in, you know, a couple different times in the early '90s. He got hit a few times and they, somebody called him a macho man for fighting. And the next day they went into the ballpark and it said macho man hit it here. All right. Now, now that never happened, never came close to happening because the other versions of the story have his mom giving him hints about the name uh, before the village people song came out. And at the time, which is what I, I joked with Lanny about one call, I was like, look, he was a die at that time. He was all in on baseball. There was no thought of wrestling. He was, you know, he was a very focused guy. So if he thought that was a good name and he decided to then wrestle, he just sat on it for like six years for no reason at all, went to Randy Savage first, then decided to do the Macho Man, then decided to start telling a story how it came about in baseball. And I have a line like in the book where I'm like, the Macho Man Randy Savage um, is a wonderful name for a wrestler. But if you're trying to be a, a baseball player, you, you would ignore it probably. Like I'm not, nobody has walk up names like that, you know, for, <laughs> you know, Hammer and Hank Aaron wasn't getting called the Hammer and Hank with all this stuff as he got introduced. So right. that was one of the ones where, and in the book, it, it's, there's actually like three full versions and two splinter versions of even just where like that came from. See, I always assume that the village people song had a lot to do with it because I mean, that was, uh, I don't know if we're the same age, but I mean, I was very little 
in the disco era and that, that was song good. was massive i mean I wasn't it was born yet in the every disco okay sorry. <laughs> but all no, right but look i was a toddler okay yeah, but yeah. i mean it was massive you heard it right. everywhere macho macho man so i always assumed because he was just starting wrestling at that yeah. time right i mean you know yeah it's the hard the time so the timeline so there's the most popular version of the story which is even told in judy papa's obituary is that she saw the phrase in while reading read, a reader's digest issue and it was about how this was going to be a big phrase like they were just talking about like popular terms coming up um and she says that the article it has nothing to do with the village people um but the article came out randy was still like randy savage and so he says my mom suggested and took it she says he suggested it and took it um the only problem is that the song wasn't there yet and randy himself um wasn't even really thinking about changing from savage just yet if he needed anything else so like you can just do like a timeline and you're like none of it makes sense but the the stories are all great like the best version of the story is like his mom came up with it that's awesome so fine and if you were telling the story to the to people asking you in a documentary or an interview it's a way better version than like yeah i, I thought it was cool that's right. A hard, that's a terrible story. <laughs> right. I and I never had a cool version for the Sheik book. It was just yeah. sort of like, well, uh, you know, it was an old movie and it had been a song and they thought it would be cool. I mean, there really isn't a great a lot of times there's not a great story with Gorilla Monsoon. I think yeah. a big part of it was back in those days, if they came up with a name for you, if you already had a name where you had the initials on your gear, they right. would try to come up with a name where you wouldn't have to change your gear. Because yeah. before that, he was called Gino Morella. So they just kept the GM. I, I don't well, think there was a ton was of thought with, put into it. No. And with Macho, when he finally, he, you know, the evolution was like, you know, Randy Papa, to, you know, Randy Savage, the Macho Man. When he finally started trying to push Macho Man, you know, there was no social media. That you, all you were doing was essentially putting the name on one of those cheap billings in the 70s or whatever that was going to go in the newspaper and then on posters outside the fairgrounds or the high school or the armory or wherever they were wrestling. So for the first few months, he was billed as Randy Savage, Mr. Macho Randy Savage, the man they call Macho, you know, like <laughs> just every version of this name. Because I don't think he had even settled on anything as far as what he was waiting to see, like if anything caught. Um, but he was billed even by when they were doing their, you know, their own outfit. He was still for a little while. It was Mr. Macho, the Macho Man. There was one that was called like in one of the newspaper articles I found. It was like the man called Macho. Like they were just pulling stuff, Clint Eastwood movie titles and throwing right. Macho in there. Like it didn't matter. And then obviously Macho Man, Randy Savage stuck. Yeah. Well, the reason I mentioned Lawler too is because it reminded me of something where uh, the the trickiness of of talking to wrestlers about, you know, for these kinds of books is – I remember when Jerry Lawler was doing his own. Jerry Lawler did an autobiography through WWE. It, yeah. uh -huh. It's good to be the king, right? Yeah, I so I was, I remember being backstage at a show. I was in catering and I'm walking through there with one of my friends who was another writer. And we used to love to, we would just break people's chops and, and say things under our breath and make fun of people. I mean, it was a common thing, but yeah. Lawler is sitting at one of the tables there and he's talking to the guy that we know is his ghostwriter. So like right. he obviously met him at TV and he's, you know, he's getting some information from him. And I yeah. leaned into my friend and I said, you know what I call that right there? That's what you call a work in progress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go through different versions of a story. I mean, I've ghostwritten books with some pretty, pretty big name people. And 
like I said, unless you know, you can tell their version, which is mm -hmm. what they're you're essentially being paid to to do. Um, but a lot the best journalists, which I think you still have to be, are going to push back because it's not happening in a vacuum, right? All are, in that book, there's a couple things I don't remember off the top of my head where you're like, ah, I think there's another version of that there, Jerry. And you know, who cares? The book came out however many years ago, and you know, it was back in those you know the 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 mass paperbacks that would come out. I think I don't even remember what else came out in. But I think now it's much harder to do that before mm -hmm. when there was no there was no human fact checking beyond the editor. People got it. They said something about it. They liked it or they didn't. Now, if you tried to do that, people would be taking screenshots of it, putting it on all over Twitter. You'd be getting crushed. So I think well, you really have to be much more careful now. Well, that yeah, that, I mean, that's one of the big problems that's arisen with Hulk Hogan, unfortunately, is Hulk Hogan was always known for being you know one of the biggest bs artists that there was with this sort of thing like yeah. andre the giant was 700 pounds i lifted him over my <laughs> head a hundred thousand people you know all the people joke yeah. about it but the problem is that he never learned that lesson he, he kept doing that and he's yeah. he does it still even in a time when everything is so verifiable and you know it it makes him look it makes him the butt of it's, jokes you know it's hard as uh, you've done a bunch of these and i have too I sometimes will do an interview like this uh, and someone will bring up, you know, whatever. Oh, I happened. I went to FSU. I'm a huge Charlie Ward fan. And if my brain doesn't shift gears fast enough and I don't, I easily, and I know there's a few times where I've just told the wrong story, right? Like even I wrote it, it's just, I wrote it five years ago and I've done six books since, and I only have only so much hard drive space in my brain. So for right. these guys, a guy like Hogan, I actually have a little bit, you know, if he's making it up in real time, I don't have any much sympathy. But if he's on a podcast now and they're, they're asking him about something that happened in 92 that was a monstrous event that he's told 600 times one way <laughs> and no one's pushed back, like, again, no sympathy for, for the Hulkster. However, like, I get how easily you can just create a new version of what happened and just steamroll all the others. But nowadays, it's also easy for you know, someone else to come out and be like, uh, actually, all seven of us were there. And that's not how it went down. Well, one thing on the subject of Hogan, and I think when we spoke originally, because I, I want to clarify what I said before, when you were researching the book, you reached out to me. Yeah. And initially, with the main purpose being because I had written the book about the Sheik, yeah. and because Randy really got his start or really got helped out early in his in his career by Ed Farhad and yeah. the Detroit Territory, and they were close to the Pafos in general. But we wound up talking about other things related to Randy. And I think I mentioned this, but on the whole feud with Hogan, the real life feud, when I was at, I visited Hogan for WWE and we did a magazine together. I, I think I might have told you this, but we did a, a magazine about him. And so we had a, we spent a few days with him, stayed at his house, which is crazy, just surreal stuff. Knock on the door, you know, Hulk Hogan answers the door. I mean, it's hard, you, yeah. it's hard to get around, get over things like that, you know, but he talked about Randy briefly, like he when we were just hanging out in between doing stuff and he would just bring up. I forget why he brought it up. Like I learned very interesting things like Christopher Lloyd on the set of what was the movie they did together? Mr. Nanny, I think, was yeah, always yeah. in his uh, trailer, apparently smoking weed all day. So, you know, you learn these random things from talking to Hogan or he had some unkind things to say about Richard Belzer. But yeah. when he brought up Randy Savage, he characterized it like he was mystified at why, and I think Randy was still alive at the time. He was mystified at why Randy hated him so much. 
and he would be more than happy to do business with him. He would love to have do, done a match and do a whole and play off of it on television and do this, but that Randy didn't want to do it. That's the way that he characterized it, that it was like Randy was just, you know, at, I don't know, like at war with himself. Like Hogan just was not even emotionally invested in the feud at all. Yeah, well, Lanny um, had a great line. I don't know. Is this a swearable podcast? You can bleep. You can yeah, bleep it whatever. I had Jim Cornette on. You can oh, okay. say whatever you so, want. So <laughs> Lanny, when I was discussing Hulk amongst other people, he just laughed and he said, you know, Randy had a fuck you list a mile long. And once you were on it, you could not get off. And that's basically it didn't matter what the reason was with Hulk or with any of the other feuds he had real or imagined. I mean, he had a big one with George the Animal Steel, which made it could not have made less sense logically why he was mad all the time at George the Animal Steel. But he was. Um, and these people, he said, you just got on it. And, you know, there was that until the you know, very end of his life with the you know, story where they met in the you know doctor's office, him and Hogan and reconciled towards the end of his life or whatever. But um, that was it. There was no, he, in his mind, it was a closed case. So why even bother deciding if you were right or wrong? It's just, you're not in his life. And even when he made that rap album and he asked Lanny to write, he wanted to help. He asked Lanny originally to help him write like a diss track for Hogan. And, and Lanny just refused. Cause he always has said like the, the greatest brief bright spot of his wrestling career was when Hogan put him over for a couple months. And I can't remember the year. Um, but that was like the only time he was ever someone in, in the business beyond just kind of a very, very B or C card person. Right, right. And uh, so he did, I guess, I think he did like a tribute to Mr. Perfect or Kurt Hennig or something for, for the album. But Yeah, I think yeah. It, L- Lanny actually beat Hogan by count out yeah. on a Saturday night's yeah. main event. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get bigger than that for no. somebody like that. So he's like, I would never, you know, blaspheme. I think he's like, I would never blaspheme uh, the Hulkster. But yeah, to your point. You know, his his list was what it was. And to go all the way back to your original point about, you know, Lawler and how these guys tell their stories with with Macho, um, the only story that mattered to him was what he told himself. He, he did <laughs> not care. I mean, he clearly he didn't care uh, in many, many regards, especially as he, you know, was at the, the peak peak of what he was. And he always I think he always resented the the, the Hogan factor for sure. I mean, even in, even when he was champion, um, and you probably were maybe on some of these issues or, or read them. I'm sure the the WWE magazine were like it would be like Macho on the cover, and then the main spread was Hogan, and then there was six pages on Hogan, and then another right. ad for Hogan dolls, and like on page 16 of the WWE's own thing, they would finally have a one page spread on the champion. And uh, I have no doubt, knowing Macho, that that pissed him off. Well, because the problem was, especially from his point of view, was he never really was allowed to get out of Hogan's shadow. It was like, I almost feel like, I definitely feel like with the ultimate warrior, who was sort of like the next would-be successor, that the company made much more of a concerted effort to say, this is the guy who is replacing Hulk Hogan, even though it didn't work out. Um, They never, with Randy, and I mean, I was a kid when this was happening, and even for us as fans, it was like, you got a sense that he's just holding on to this belt until hogan you know comes back and wins it back like there was well, this yeah. you wanted you wanted somebody other than hogan i mean people i mean i've said this before a lot of people were sick of hogan after four years of him yeah. and savage was almost like he was like the cool edgier version of hogan where like even if you were a little older you weren't a little kid you could root for him 
and he was kind of a badass. And and I loved when they put it on him. I was like, finally, something new and different. Yeah. But then, but it just seemed like there never was the idea that he's going to take over for Hogan. Well, no, and they really, you know, it's like kind of a little bit of the Roman Reigns thing now with kind of getting him to that number. You just, there's just nothing new there. And they, you know, look at even how Macho got the title. It wasn't really, it wasn't through Hogan. It was this this tournament and they blew it up where he beat, you know, DiBiase and all these guys getting there. Um, but the crowning moment was him in the ring with Hogan. Like it was never, there was never the moment where Hogan was felled and Macho was like this. And, you know, he had the title for a, like a significant amount of time. You know, Hogan went away for the, that little bit of time. But like, while they were both there, like, if if you were running it, I was running it. I you know I would have had him beat Ho like a Ali Frazier. Like they should have had where maybe he won twice, and if they wanted to give it back to Hogan, it was a year and a half later or something. They never did it that way. I mean, look, I'm older now. I was seven and eight when this happened, but like I see how they book things now and how they just draw some of these things out. And I, I wondered there must have been just money at the heart of all of it, or Hogan had probably that much power because he he really was just you know it's so hard for people listening now who didn't grow up then like. Hogan was Babe Ruth. Like, even mm -hmm. those of us who were like, give us another champion, you still couldn't picture wrestling without Hogan. I'd want him to disappear. I just wanted another champion. Um, and so I think that uh, it would have been cool. I agree 100%. They didn't let him do that. And I even think the the macho ultimate feud was awesome and could have had more legs had they decided. I know they did like the you know retirement match, which led to the summer, you know, the, the wedding and all that stuff. But like, it was a great match. I mean, yes. it really was. And they should have. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, Randy got the best match out of the Warrior that I think he ever, ever had. That yes. he ever had. Yeah. Yes. I Even found better a, than the Hogan match. Yeah. I found an old interview with, because he's, you know, so many of these guys are passed away, unfortunately, um, with Warrior talking about working with Randy. And he, Warrior, you know, he's notoriously like, <laughs> you know, tough in the interviews. Not an easy yes. guy to get along with. But in this interview, it was like, it was like I don't know, it was some local station. I, I credited in the book, but I found it through YouTube, you know, whatever. And uh, he's talking about how you know, I gave more in my entrance than 90% of these guys gave in their whole match. And, you know, he talks about how the only guy with, who had that push was Savage to, you know, he recognized like a counterpart when they were doing their program together. And I remember when I was watching that interview and I rewatched that match, you know, how many times for the, for the book. And I was like, geez, they really blew it. Like the big thing that people don't probably remember unless you're like watching it right now is how much bigger Warrior was than Macho. Hogan was always bigger and bulkier um, than Macho by four inches and whatever. But somehow Macho managed to take up a similar amount of space with his walking on the tiptoes and all that. Mm -hmm. Warrior looks like an adult different species in that match than Macho. He really looks like he has 100 pounds on him. Um and Macho gave him everything he had. And I, I remember as I'm watching it, you know, two years ago or a year ago when I was writing the book thinking, we were robbed of a rematch, like a real, I know they did other things together, but a real title run rematch with these two. Yeah, they did the, um, there was the SummerSlam one in Wembley. Wembley, but, yeah. But, th but that was yeah. overshadowed. I mean, yeah. Bret Hart and and British Bulldog was really, even that though I get, I get pushback on this from some people uh, on the American side of it. Yeah. But you, give me a break. I mean, the main event of that, I mean, they went on last. The main event yeah, of that show was Bret Hart and the British Bulldog. And I yeah. felt like Randy Savage and the Ultimate Warrior was was an afterthought, which was weird because it was even differently from the WrestleMania one. It was face versus face. I mean, they were both 
hugely popular at the time where a savage was a heel going into that mania match yeah but, and it didn't matter it didn't involve hogan which was great and they didn't yeah. feel like it needed to involve hogan which was great um that was one of the few i think it was because overseas i don't remember when i was watching it again i was like i don't think i watched this in real time i don't remember it was the time difference or something i just it was one of the few big time matches that i know i saw at some point then but it wasn't that like that day or that weekend and it was very out of vhs yeah, it was a very like indecisive finish, if I remember right. I think yeah. it was a DQ or something, which then you understand why they didn't put it on last. I mean, they would have had a riot if they ended it that way. But oh, the yeah, whole yeah. like the whole drama of the match was supposedly like whose corner is Mr. Perfect gonna be in? Like that's what yeah. the whole match was built around. Yeah. If I remember right. And again, yeah, it was but... like so many things were just overshadowing it. You know what? I almost felt like like you were saying, there's no Hogan involved. That was the first pay-per-view they ever did that didn't have Hogan on it. And I think they must have been really nervous and they were throwing a million things at the wall to try to make up for the fact that there was no Hogan. But I found in my research, you know, I found the Nielsen ratings of the Saturday Night events. The company, the ratings did not dip with Macho as champion. Nothing happened. There there was no drop-off. They still had a really strong roster. Macho says in in you know you know back then they weren't doing they were doing obviously their their promos and stuff but they weren't doing like twitter posts or anything like that there wasn't there they were doing interviews in every local paper in the country every time they went to a new station and i have some really good sections in there that explain like what the life of a wwf champion was in the you know 89 90 92 93 and he, you know he basically took on his and hulk's schedule cuz hulk was gone and it was like i i can't remember the exact sequence but it was like interview interview match tuesday house match tuesday night fly out wednesday interview local tv house match thursday you know event with a sponsor thursday morning fly back out i mean he was everywhere he took it all on he'd been waiting for it his whole life frankly yeah. um, and so there had to have been a thing where and i'm sure he knew the numbers he was actually a very smart guy uh he was a honor student like he understood business he and from his dad he understood ratings he understood tv there had to have been a part of him where when vince approached him was like okay so here's how you're going to drop this thing he had to be like, why the, why am I dropping that? Like, I am doing all that Hogan did and more, and I'm carrying the sponsorships and I'm carrying the attendance. Like, leave me alone. And I, I had a resentment there had to have been real. There's so many stories like that in wrestling where, you know, there's these guys like, like I know, in, I'm pretty sure in Randy's case with him getting the belt, they knew a year out what they were going to do the next year that they were going to feud. Two. They yeah. were gonna they were gonna turn Randy right, and Hogan was gonna get it back. Same thing happens with you know recently superstar Billy Graham passed away, and so the story started coming up again about how when superstar beat Bruno San Martino, he was told you're gonna hold it for ten months, blah blah blah. You're gonna lose it on this date at the <laughs> Garden to yeah. Bob Backlund, and in the back of his head he's thinking I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna show them up. I am gonna yeah. be the greatest drawing heel champion people aren't going to be able to get enough of me they're gonna i'm gonna pack in the crowd i'm gonna be colorful and they're gonna change their mind and they don't usually change their mind they're just these promoters and vince as much as he liked to think of himself and in many ways he was the the new wave the new generation he still had these old school ways of just this is the plan we're sticking with the plan the end there's nothing you can do to change it and that like eats these guys up sometimes well he didn't care about who was hot i mean he just did it we just watched it with la knight or who you know like yeah, just, yeah, yeah. They, they they build these programs the mega powers were built to be destroyed 
And you could argue that it was, I mean, for, for a nine, eight, seven, six year old, however old I was at the time, like having those two together was like your brain exploded. Like it was the two, it were, it really was a moment. Like I give them credit for that. Um, I don't, I always wondered if they should have done that later, if they should have figured out a program to have Macho get the belt just as a, his own performer, the way they did it. But you're hundred percent right. There's, I don't remember which page in, in the book, but I actually break down all the chess pieces from the moment they probably sat in a room and decided, okay, here is where we're going to have the mega powers explode. And now work your way back on all the pieces that have to go involved with all the other matches and who, what, who has to lose what belt and why and how. And you realize that they never took into account, like what if Randy's an awesome champion? <laughs> right, right. They never, that's what I mean. That was the warrior difference. I think with the warrior, yeah. they really were hoping that we we're going to move on from Hogan and now we're going to, you know, do now the warriors are guy. And I think once they realize, cause warrior is really where there's a difference there. Things start to drop the, 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 yeah, the numbers warrior. start to drop and then they panic. Yep. yep. They have slaughter as the transitional champ and then they bring it back to Hogan. But I do not think that that was ever the original plan. I really don't. No, I, I think the Warrior, again, I'm having the total like beauty of looking at it now from then. I loved Warrior. The, I mean, everything he did as, you know, when you were that perfect prime WWE age was just fire you up and running out and there's ropes and everything. And the, the gorilla press, like, I mean, I still do that to my son in the pool this weekend. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just awesome. But there was just like, he was almost like a, I'm not going to, I'm not diminishing at all because he, he was an amazing guy. But like, He's almost like best supporting actor. Like he was just the greatest, but he wasn't like his promos were not, you know, you didn't quote him really on anything. He did the whole the gods thing. And right. It just he didn't have that crossover. Like your, you know, your parents kind of knew who Randy was and the ooh yeah, and he was doing what he was doing. Um, I don't remember anyone outside of wrestling ever talking about the ultimate warrior. Uh, he was never gonna be in movies the way these other guys were, uh, or on TV episodes. And and they tried him with Slim Jim and it didn't work even too. Right, yeah. And I think the difference, too, is that with, with Savage and with Hogan, there was much more of a connection with a wider kind of group of fans. Like, I think, like, we were little. I mean, you were littler than I was. But, you know, a lot of people that think back fondly on The Ultimate Warrior, and they're people, generally guys, who were very little boys at the time, and that's their memory. You're a little boy, yeah. and this guy is a superhero. But I don't think at the time that his appeal was much bigger than that. It was the little, little kids, the little boys yeah. and not many else. And I think with Hogan and Savage, that was not the case. I think there was a broader appeal. You had older, I mean, yes, the kids loved them, especially Hogan, but I think some older fans liked them too. I mean, especially, yeah. I think, I think uh, of the three of them, I think Savage was the most popular with female fans. I would have to say. They loved him. Yeah. Yes. And you know, I think it comes down to basic storytelling, right? There's the hero's arc, right? The character arc of what happens. And for, for our age, you know, if you were plus or minus five, you know, plus or minus five years old from 1985, whatever, moving on. Um, you watch Savage come on the scene. You watched the incredible Ricky Steamboat match. You, you watched that whole storyline. You watched him get the Intercontinental belt, then lose the Intercontinental belt. You watched him join with Hogan and drop with Hogan. You watched the agony with Miss Elizabeth. You were like, you were invested in this guy for years. And when he finally became champion both, both times and he finally faced Warrior, they were both faces. But Warrior is what you said is perfect. It's almost like 
what people keep knocking with like the Captain Marvel movies. Like he just showed up perfectly strong and amazing with no flaws. And it was like, you will root for me because I'm amazing and dominant. Right. Um, but there's no like, well, what's his Achilles heel? Like what makes him, what's, what's the bad downside? Like how did he over, what did he overcome to get here? Is he always just been this unstoppable 285 pound force? Whereas Macho, you saw his, you know, Elizabeth, like the most visible Achilles heel of all time, even when he was with Sherry, you couldn't help like, are they getting back together? And then they got back together. Like he was a family member. He's the only one. That, that's how I kind of thought about him when I was you know, really starting out. I was like, the reason I think he resonated the most is because he had all the human flaws on display. Jealousy with Elizabeth, with Elizabeth, jealousy of Hogan, finally getting there, but not getting all the credit. Having the, He was definitely the coolest. He was way cooler than anybody else with the yes. catchphrases and how he looked and how he moved and wanting to imitate him. I mean, yeah, people said brother and, you know, but that was it. Hogan, you just kind of said his catchphrases. You wanted to be macho, man. That was the difference. And that's true. Like you said, he he was the most human. He had the most, uh, the foibles and kind of like shortcomings. He was insanely jealous and just petty especially yeah. when he was a heel and mean and you could tell like th it was so interesting it makes you wonder like obviously he's drawing from something within himself like he had that real intensity you don't you can't just put that on but like you you can almost see the character he's putting out there is somebody that the whole macho man thing it's like inside you're questioning yourself yeah. am i really this great and you project it out by having to be like the toughest guy in the room. Like he had these layers to the character that warrior never had. I mean, warrior didn't, no. like you said, didn't even seem like a human being. You never no. even like, it was like he came from another dimension. And I guess they thought of that as a positive at the time. Like it was Hogan to the next level, but he had no, like Hogan to his credit, which was wild because the guy never lost, but he would manage to project weakness at times like could he win this one like he would he would be afraid sometimes you could see oh my god he's scared like, like, like is he you know he was scared of andre the giant there were things like that where he had uncertainty and he had doubt the warrior had none of that stuff it was just yeah. he was just a superhero from another planet you warrior know? was either tired or dominant <laughs> yes hogan right. was a master at the look to the audience of like holy shit yeah, I'm right. scared. And he, his face, I think, honestly, the ball thing helped because he had such a giant head and they would zoom in. But when he was nervous or scared, which he was fine, right? He, I think it was because he never lost. He was like, well, I could be terrified right now. I know I'm winning. It doesn't matter. But when he went into the, oh my God, I'm getting beat, that sad look on his face, like he'd hit someone and nothing would happen and he'd have the big eyes and you felt for the, somehow you knew he was going to win, but you felt for him. And you were just waiting for the moment where he would do the shake off and someone would hit him and it wouldn't hurt and it wouldn't hurt again. And he would come back and he just, it was like, a, like a, like a, like the, like, you know, a musician playing their greatest hit over and over, but you were okay with it. It was like, you know, Springsteen playing Born to Run at the end of the night. And you were fine with every other song and the thing, even if he played stuff you didn't care about because you were going to get Born to Run. And that was Hogan. And he played that perfectly and so randy counterpart was like you actually lived all this stuff with him throughout all of that time i mean you just believe and he was i really think it comes up a lot but he was small he was not a superhero he has a line in one of the newspaper uh promotions i think for the wembley the slumber slam where he's like you know he never he was always super insecure about his size i mean he he just knew he was too small 
Um, and he has some line of like, I didn't know they made humans as big as the warrior. You know, he's like six four, two seventy five, who run, you know, like a linebacker because he was, um, you know, Hogan took up a ton of space. He looked like a Hulk. Ultimate warrior was a warrior. You know, Macho Man does these, you know, these big promos with Mean Gene Oakland, and he's like an inch taller than Mean Gene. Like he doesn't tower over him. He's not this massive, intimidating force. He's moving all around the screen to mask the fact that he's like six foot, two hundred twenty pounds. And, and isn't it crazy? People don't think of him that way. I right. mean, obviously, you know, you came to that realization because you're writing a book on the guy and right. you're go going in as deep as you can get. But nobody thought of him that way as a smaller guy. But you're right. And I remember even sometimes in the magazines, they would reference it or they would not the WWF magazines, but like uh, the PWIs and things. And the, or they put his weight, you know, his real not his real weight, but probably closer to his real weight than what WWE yeah. said he was. And you would go, wow, he's almost like he's in the size range of like a Shawn Michaels or a Bret Hart, you know, yep. of a later generation who yep. were. But those guys, it was no secret. Like the whole the whole scoop on those guys was they're they're a little bit smaller than the other guys, but, but they're more they make up for it. Right. Yeah. That was never really what was said about Savage. He was right there in a class with the Hogan's, the Warriors, the biggest guys from that, like the Titans of that era. Nobody thought of him as a smaller guy. No, and you know the the transition he made from baseball to to wrestling is really where you have to like take a break as a someone who by you know writing the biography of like to understand it was the most like magnificent physical transformation for for a job you've ever seen. Like at the end of the day, he just switched jobs from pro baseball player to pro wrestler. And he was in all the guys you talked to who were in the minor league dugouts with him. He was in a phenomenal shape. He was like shredded. He did thousands of push-ups a day. He had his father's, you know, work ethic. Um, Angelo was a you know big believer in, in calisthenics and body weight squats and push-ups and all these things. And the boys were too. And um, Randy was like listed always six foot one eighty, six foot one eighty five maybe. Uh, always described as like muscular but like very lean, like tight core, you know, big forearms just athletic. He was very athletic. He wasn't a fast runner. So when he, you know, when baseball doesn't work out for him, he goes on this just mission to get to like 220, but he couldn't get six, four. Like he still was basically <laughs> six foot. I mean, he's listed at six, one a bunch, but we all know how that is even in baseball. Right. So I, I figure even some of the guys that I talked to, like he was probably about barefoot, maybe at his peak height, full chest, like six foot and a half, maybe right. six, one discrepancy wise, but he was not one of these monster guys. And he had a very hard time keeping on that weight. That mass for him at a six foot frame is very, very difficult. I, I, my, I have a theory that like the reason um, he's always carrying things in his promos and moving things around in a cup of coffee is so that he can get like the width of his arms in mm. when he's holding stuff. Because if he just stood still with his arms at his side next to Mean Gene, it would sort of dawn on you at some point like, oh, he's. It's like a, I mean, he's muscular as hell, but like he's not a, a hulking human being. Um, and it's all the movement, even in the big mega powers promo where they shake hands and all that. Uh -huh. When they're far apart for a second, if you're not used, like, you know, if you're kind of suspending disbelief, you're like, wait a minute, Hulk is so much bigger than this guy. <laughs> I think uh, Roddy Piper also was not a naturally huge guy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when in those years when he came to the WWF, he was jacked like everybody else had to yeah. be to be there. But you can tell that, 
you know, it wasn't his natural form, so to speak. Right. You know, I mean, he he was kind of a skinny guy, and you could you see that in the years before and the years after. At, um, in some ways, a later version of like what Savage did to me is, yeah, to me is like um, Eddie Guerrero, who was yeah. uh, a smaller guy in the two thousands, naturally smaller, but he made himself get as huge as possible, and yeah. he had this larger than life personality again which kind of made up for it and he could be taken seriously as a top guy but even with him it was not as as much of a secret quote unquote his size as it was well, with it's randy hard. it's just you a know, wild thing how he was able by the force yeah. of his will to just convince everybody that he was a big guy it's incredible well i think about it because i'm almost i'm, I'm 511 and i'm about 200 pounds and i lift a lot and so i'm almost about that size and i think about what it would take to get to 240 and stay there which is what he did i mean he was when he was big as at his biggest with you know some concoction of whatever he was on he they sure. he was around 240 he was big i mean even lanny said he, he was he was benching around 500 he was getting to be a big dude um the 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 calorie consumption like just the general like focus on getting that mass and keeping that mass because when he was running around the territories he was a bodybuilder on the side like he walked around at like 12% body fat with like a shredded midsection and you look at you know him at his peak at WWF he he doesn't have a six pack anymore i mean he's in shape but his midsection is now big his chest went from like carved to like really puffy and his shoulders are puffy and not to like you know, nitpick the macho man, but like it was all to be able to do exactly what you said, to be able to sit on the same billing as a Hogan or a maniac. And even if it wasn't right away noticing it, but to have those guys actually without anybody thinking they're too much of a different size. Well, and later on um, in his, in the, in the nineties, I want to say, I guess, starting in around that time of that warrior match is when he starts wrestling with a top on, which yeah. to me knowing what I know, whenever I see them do that, it's always a sign of like, there's a reason why they're covering up because yeah. if they looked amazing under there, they would not cover it up. You know yeah. what I mean? There's a reason why when Jake, the snake came back, he yes. had a shirt on, you know, and things like that. There's guys that wrestle always with tops on. And I think like, in fact, you mentioned Roman reigns and it, it's only been in recent years, very recent years, that he finally has been stripped down. And and I think, again, there, there's... And I'm not always saying the reason is that they're out of shape, but there's always some reason. Some guys may have tattoos that they don't want to show on TV or whatever. Yeah. There's never a guy where they go, yo, you look great, now just put a shirt on. Yeah, there's no one's like reason. telling Austin Theory to put a shirt on. <laughs> right, that's what I mean. So, like, to yeah. me, that was always the, the, the notice in my mind, okay, maybe he's not in the kind of shape that he was before, you know, otherwise yeah. why would he be wearing these, like – whatever you want to call them sleeveless kind of top. Yeah. They were like ones. That was weird. Yeah. That was a strange <laughs> error for him, but you know, he hung on as long as he could with that stuff. And, and, you know, obviously I think the years of the elbow drops and the hip drops and all the, you know, all the ones mm -hmm. off TV, that's what my appreciation. Cause I, I really came at it. This is my first, you know, wrestling project, even though I did a chapter on, on Hogan on, um, on the rock and stone cold in my 96 book, but this was the first real deep dive. I guess I never really knew how much these guys wrestled off camera. Um, especially mm -hmm. before the WWF days back then um, when he was in ICW and running around. And I didn't realize that they really did wrestle twice a night, five nights a week or more. Um, and from what I, you know, what I learned from research wise, like it wasn't like a light night or a night off. It was the same amount of jumps and hits and bumps and punches. And, and so, you know, when he finally made it to the WWF and he was doing that, I didn't know the concept. And it's funny because I'd been to them as a fan, but 
I just assumed everything was on TV. Not now as an adult, I understand that. But when I was a kid, I was like, okay, so if it's here, if I'm here, it's on. I didn't know the number of shows and the traveling they did between the actual, you know, TV audiences. It's crazy. Yeah, even today where the schedule is nothing like what it used to be, yeah. still in a major company like WWE, um, they are still doing more untelevised matches than the televised ones on it's a given crazy. week. It's we wild. Well, when they came here. Yeah. It's well, it's like, you know, it's like the the origin of this is really in the world of live events, even more than television. It's sort of like television. You know, wrestling existed, as we all know, before television. So there was always that mentality of this is a touring live production. It's like the circus or whatever else you want to say. And yeah. the TV, especially back then and when when Randy and Hulk and those guys in the 80s, the TV was almost like an infomercial. It was like a yeah. commercial to get you out to the arena or to get you maybe to buy a pay-per-view to watch at home or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, they were they were doing it. I mean, God, I mean, the, the schedule they had back then – is has got to be the the worst schedule that anybody's ever had in wrestling ever. because it's I'm talking about the 80s WWF early 90s because they're doing they were doing A B and sometimes C shows they would do like a show in the afternoon another show at night and they wouldn't even get to come home like they do now they come home every week you know right. for a couple of days they would be out sometimes 30 days because it was they didn't even have enough time off to even bother going home You'd get a Crazy. day off after two weeks and you were in the middle of nowhere. So why are you going to fly home? So they would do that. And then on top of it, WWF was a national promotion. It wasn't even a territory anymore. So you're flying all over the country, all over North America doing that. I mean, they killed themselves doing that. Yeah. And the one of the bigger things that I, I realized um, in a bunch of quotes from and I, I like one of the reasons I liked doing this book with Macho was because they did so much press in the papers in the seventies with, you know, when he was working with his dad and moving up into WWE that, that those quotes are about as real as you're going to get. Cause they're in the moment and they're about things. And I found a ton of clippings of when they were just doing like the Tampa Bay armory. And, you know, then, then they were all through the Kentucky and Louisville and trying to get into Rupp arena and all that. And the equipment, the rings were garbage. I mean, Macho mm -hmm. is doing this elbow drop. People, you know, he'd been doing it for years and years and years. He starts doing it through tables. But this wasn't like, at the very minimum, like the super bouncy, like SmackDown and Raw and AEW, those rings, I mean, you and I could bounce pretty high off those. Like, they're yeah. pretty comfortable. Uh, I'm not saying I'd want to dive off, but like, they're okay. There's a give. Right. They're made to rings. reduce the impact and to help out these, these guys' bodies. A yeah. plank and a pad or, you know, some other old ring that they had from some other event with animals. I mean, he was doing these dyes on maybe a quarter inch of foam over steel. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, it's a wonder he could even walk into his fifties. And it might be, it might just be an old boxing ring sometimes. Where Which had no, yeah, no, no give. give, no give, just wood and canvas over oh, it. Brutal. Like, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, when I look crazy. at, uh, when I look as an adult now, and I keep saying that, but it's true. It's very hard. I didn't analyze any of this stuff. You don't analyze someone's career when you're 10, 12, 16 right, years old. Right. But when you're grown up and you understand things, you can kind of figure it out. And that was one of the things I realized was the physical beating these guys took. And more particularly, I do give Macho you know, credit for taking more because he was a high flyer. You know, Hogan didn't go off the I mean, Hogan had the elbow, the leg drop, which ruined his hips forever. Right. Um, and he was his size. But there weren't that many guys who consistently were like part of their deal was going off the top with the elbow or the hip or whatever it was. You get a sense for what they had to do and what they put themselves through when you yeah. see that even the guys who were known for working like a safer, lower impact style, like a Hogan, 
guys that weren't known for doing crazy stuff, even their bodies fall apart after a yeah. while. Like, um, uh, again, with Bruno, I know, like, towards the end of his life, people thought he was going to live to be 100, you know, and he he, he made it past 80. But pe everybody was like, wow, I thought he would live a lot longer. And it's, you know, the impact. And this came up, like, just sometimes they they um, have organ failures later in life and things. Yeah. Just jarring your body so There's much no against recovery. everything. Right. Like, you you no just start to, your body just starts to crumble. Like Hogan, a good example, like what you said when, you know, his leg, I don't know if this is still the case, but I know at one point he had one leg that was pretty severely atrophied. And that's why he started wearing pants a lot and things yeah. because uh, of the nerve damage in his hips. And Paul Orndorff had that thing with his arm where his arm yeah. got super skinny because of nerve damage in his neck. And I mean, I think these Hogan's are not on record as saying he's lost like three inches in height. Yeah. From just the repeated compression of his spine on the drops on the drops. I mean, I get it. I mean, you look at even now, like um, Randy Orton just came back and he looks great. But like whatever injury he had, you know, I know the back and all that stuff. But like I'm assuming all these guys had that, too, or some version of it in the 70s and 80s and didn't have the medical stuff for today and didn't have that stuff. And also probably didn't have the paycheck or the luxury to take time off. And I was thinking about it because of the macho book. I was like wondering how many wrestlers just wrestled through some version of that for years to get a paycheck. And that's why, you know, sometimes people like to criticize the older wrestlers by saying that, oh, they didn't really do much and they sat in a headlock for such and such a time and they didn't. But they were trying to be smart. They were trying <laughs> they to save lives, themselves. Yeah. They were trying for exactly the reasons you said. They didn't, in some cases, didn't have tons of money. They didn't have health insurance. They couldn't afford to be on the shelf. Now yeah. we see these guys are constantly on the shelf. Look, in, in all the major companies, there's constant injuries, major stars constantly going on the shelf. There's a reason why they Plus worked. Off. They have, you know, yeah. Roman, you know, I mean, he doesn't, he never wrestles. Like, my well, son yeah. is like, we all, I mean, I know it's like the running line, but like, I'm waiting for Randy to say the line, like in one of these spats that they're having now that he's back of like, you've been champ for 1200 days, but you've wrestled like seven times. Like, and, and he's not even on the road. He's not even doing those house shows. Yeah, like he he's does not even nothing. doing anything. Nothing. Yeah. He does nothing. So nothing. I think but, the the guys who held the titles before were, were, you know, it was impressive. They were, they were workhorses. Even if, even if we, the fans back then, you didn't know how many times they were wrestling, right? No. All you knew about was what was on TV and when they came to your town, you know, to your yes. arena. We didn't know, but there was a work ethic, as crazy as it was, to doing that, even though they destroyed themselves. But yeah, I mean, there, there was an ethic to it. And, and a lot of times they did try to do it in as safe a way as they possibly could. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But some things you can't, there's no way to do safely. I mean, you just have to do it. You know? No, and plus, like, if you think about just, you know, now everything we're learning from the, you know, like I said, I spent a lot of the time writing in, about pro athletes. Um, and like the recovery is so important. What these guys do, the load management in the NBA, the days off in the NFL, like all this stuff. These guys not only would have two or three shows a night, it wasn't like they went to a Ritz Carlton after that to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> and then most of the time they were hopping in a car you know, especially in the territories, hopping in a car, driving somewhere overnight with one of them drove or switching off, getting no sleep or shitty sleep in the backseat of a, you know, of a, of a sedan, or they were hopping on some kind of bus or a Greyhound bus two to a seat with these big guys sleeping, maybe having a McDonald's, you know, to, like they had no advantages um, at all that the current athletes and entertainers have and the WWE guys have. So it's hard to uh, judge errors like we do in all sports, whether it's, you know, Jordan LeBron or any of these things. But when you look at the modern stars, and you compare them even to the 80s which era we're talking about uh it's a it really is a wonder that any of them lasted as long as they did yeah and 
you forgot also booking their own travel. I mean, yes. that's that's oh the thing God. that blows people away. There was yes. an interview recently with one of the because it still happens. One of the WWE wrestlers was on a talk show, a mainstream talk show, and it came up and just the yeah. interviewer was just she got so hung up on this. She just yeah. had st almost stopped the whole interview. Like, wait a minute. You don't you know, because I think the, the flights they didn't have to handle, but they would have right. to book hotels. They would have to book rental cars. And I mean, that's something you never see. You wouldn't see in any other business. Well, Macho, the beauty of Macho was his first priority was the gym. Any city. I thought that Paul Roman, all these guys like Macho was like people would be on the plane or on a bus like, oh, what, what are we, you know, where are we staying? Is there a good restaurant? And, Ma and he would always go to Roma, who was a pretty big lifter. Uh, where what's what's the gold gym or what's the 20 like what's the what do we do with 20 hour fitness but it's gold gym planet fitness whatever they were um so macho would be like plain gym then if there was time hotel or not like he was a maniac with that stuff um and that's what triple h does a lot of those guys batista i interviewed a lot of these guys for when i was with muscle and fitness um and they're like if you ask any of them what their key to jet lag was it was like get off the get off the plane and lift get a sweat in. And then whatever you do after that, your body sort of acclimates a little bit better than just like trying to catch up on sleep. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I remember that too, from when I worked there, just always, in fact, sometimes they would get travel notes. They would get notes from the office yeah. that would go out to all of them. And it would say like, here's where the nearest gym is. Here's where yeah. the nearest tanning salon is. Cause they were always looking for yeah, those well, too. Was, yeah. Macho for sure. Yeah. And they would try to help them out. But I want to ask before, before we run out of time, there was actually yeah. something cause you mentioned it at the beginning talking about Lanny Poffo. And I think that's really interesting. And that's important for people to know too, with the book is that, you know, we lost Lanny God, I think it was about a year ago, maybe. But uh, yeah, something like that. When you started that. this, he was around and he was helping you. So, I mean, what was that like? What was his involvement like? Yeah. So I, this had been like a bucket, like a, like a dream biography. I have every writer. I'm sure you have your list of like, mm -hmm. man, I would just love to tackle this. Half of them. Someone else did. You're not, you know, you're not original thinker. Someone obviously is going to do a biography of some of these people we would love to do. Um, and just luckily I got, you know, no one had done macho. So I was like, uh, okay, this is like my dream biography to do. The only hang up I always had was, and it's, it's honestly because my brother is like my best friend. I'm close to him and, and not being more, but I could never think of somebody writing a book on me alive or not without talking to him. Like, how do you, like, he's been a part of every part of my life and we're not colleagues professionally, but macho and Lanny were. So I just kept thinking like, I could do this you know, without him, I guess. But like, the first question you or anyone would ask who knows anything about wrestling, and again, I didn't know anything you know terribly was going to happen to him, was like, would you talk to Lanny? And I always felt like if I did, all the credibility would be like, mm. like, mm -hmm. oh, you did a book on Macho and didn't talk to Lanny. So um, I started trying to reach out to him even before I had the pitch out to, like I had the proposal done, ready to send the ECW in places, but I did not want to send it without Lanny on board. So I basically, I won't say lost, but like I spent a year just trying to get in touch with him. He was very hard to get in touch with if you weren't in his inner circle. Elusive. And, um, yes. I have to give a huge shout out, uh, JP Zarka at Pro Wrestling Stories. He, I interviewed him uh, for the 96 book about just something small about like Stone Cold coming on the scene. Um, and I just saw that he and his, the two of them had collaborated on a podcast. They only did like, you know, like most people, like three episodes and that was it or something. Right. Um, but he, you know, he does a great job on that site. And I was like, if there's any way, like I could maybe get in touch with Lanny. And, and he persisted, even with him, it took, three or four months or more to get in touch with Lanny. And finally, Lanny was in Ecuador, I think, and yeah. he doesn't have a phone. And so he wanted to talk through FaceTime messaging. It was some, it was, you know, Lanny. 
And we finally were able to, after several missed messages where I was asking him certain questions, we were finally able to get in touch. And um, he just like, I mean, you have to kind of know Lanny a little bit. I don't know. I, I met him towards the very end of his life. I weren't long-term friends. I don't want to misrepresent our relationship at all. But I'd read so much about their family. I'd read so much about their lives. I felt like I knew, he, I obviously knew him a thousand times better than he knew me. He just started like hammering me with macho questions. And I really hadn't started too much research yet. So I was this like, I, I would have now I'd be like, whatever. I mean, hit me. But at the time I was like, I'd just, all I did was a proposal, you know, book proposals like, this right. is interesting. This is interesting. I'm going to spend a month yeah. on this. Like, it's I don't proof know of concept. It's, yeah. it's right. Yeah, right. And he was just hammering me with these questions, not in a negative way, just like, what about this? What about that? And uh, and then he asked me, his big line was, uh, if I knew Howard Finkel, obviously, because my last name's Finkel. And I was like, no. And I made a joke. I was like, but my father's name's Harvey Finkel. So, you know, you love, you know, coincidence is the same initials. And that made him laugh. And And so he was like, all right, it's whatever the gauntlet was I passed. And he was like, let's go. And I was like, all right, well, I'd love to set up some time, um, you know, to spend, I don't know, maybe a couple different blocks, but I'd love a couple. I basically didn't want to, I said, I want a couple hours if possible. And he was like, can you do it now? And it was just, I mean, it was like three 30 on like a Wednesday. And I kind of like looked really quick at my schedule and the kids and my wife. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I have you on the phone. Like, let's <laughs> right, just do right. this. Um, and we spoke for, I was closer to three. It was a long, long time. And I got every possible question out I could possibly think of. Um, and so we had planned on talking um, later and I was like, look, I'll just keep a running list of questions and I don't want to have a regular thing. I know you have your life. He was coming to the States. Uh, he's like, oh, I'll be in the States in a couple months and we'll meet when I'm on your time zone. And he was maybe coming to Florida for something. And I was like, well, man, I would love to like sit down. Um, and he passed away. And I had, I had, I had my running list of Lanny questions that I kept going and I had stayed in touch with him through Facebook messenger, you know, Hey, what about this little things? But I saved any fun conversational thing for a conversation. Um, and fortunately, it was all stuff that I could resource other ways that I would have just liked his perspective on. I mean, that's it. Really. I got about 10,000 words from our conversation covering everything. Well, um, yeah. But my landing questions, uh, yeah, there was some just not like, you know, but what was your apartment like here? What did you guys do here? What was your day to day like when you were at this time of your life? That kind of stuff. That's it, really. I mean, when you're talking to people like that, like I got a chance to talk to um, Gorilla Monsoon's widow, who is still with us, Maureen yeah. Morella, uh, is still with us. And I wanted, it's not so much factual information, right? I mean, that yeah. you can find. It's, I want your point of view. I want the mm -hmm. feeling of what things were like that you're not yeah. going to get from uh, from just looking up newspaper clippings and things or, or like your college yeah. record. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to talk to, um, gorilla's sisters who he has two half sisters who are still uh -huh. with us and they're, they were significantly younger than him, but they have, you know, they grew up in the house with him. Those are the kind yeah. of things that you, I you love... like have to get some quotes and things. Of well, just the house the views. Is, I've always found with biographies that if you can paint the picture of where they live and how they live, you can really bring the reader in. And so like I've, you know, interviewed dozens of the friends that they had um, in Downers Grove. I mean, I can basically close my eyes and paint this house for you that they grew up in. And, you know, I talked to the minor league teammates and here's what their four bedroom shithole in Sarasota looked like. And, you know, early years of Rip Rogers and them living together in Lexington and these dumps would had, you know, a weight bench in the front yard and dumbbells in the fridge and just, you know, all the pranks they'd pull on each other. And what I was trying to get some of, and I got some from Lanny, but I, again, then the research later was like, 
there were some places in the middle there that's like, you know, it's easy to look back. And I'm sure you had this, uh, especially with like um, the Sheik is like, you look at something and you're like, oh, they did this fight, this match and this match and that thing. And then you're like, wait, that was seven months. Like, where did you live for seven months? Like, <laughs> yes. you know, it's easy to just look at the billings and the bookings and be like, oh, they were in, you know, they were in uh, Cleveland and then, uh, you know, Wisconsin and then here and here. And then you look at it and you're like, whoa, wait, hold on. This took six months. If it was six months of my life from now till whatever, like, where did I live? What did I eat? What did I do? You know? Right. With with Sheik, I had that happen when I saw when he went down to work in Texas. Now, uh -huh. now he worked for the McMahons in the Northeast for about a year or a year and a half straight in the late 50s. And my understanding is, believe it or not, that he was actually going back and forth from Lansing, Michigan to the Northeast for this. But um he wasn't doing that when he was in Texas. I mean, that's right. just too far away. And then that's when I had to look into it and go, what was the living arrangement? And I discovered that he took his whole family down there. Yeah, they roomed, that's they, the good stuff. Right. Yeah. They roomed. He, You know, his son was before school age. He was very little. They uprooted them. They knew they were going to come back eventually. And they went down there for like a year or two. And they roomed with, of course, he was, he, they were, they were living in the apartment with the guy that he was feuding with, you know, very oh, typical in wrestling, yeah, yeah. who was also kind of his best friend, Leaping Larry right. Shane. But it's yeah. like you, you, you do, you, you, you figure out the, the missing pieces based on the context around it of yeah. what you have to look for. Like right now I'm getting it with Gorilla because he got one of his first breaks wrestling out in Calgary for the Hart uh -huh. family. And I mean, that's another yeah. world. Yeah. And I think, well, I'll get into this in the book, but I think that, you know, it caused a lot of upheaval in his early personal life, of course. The, commi the commitment of having to move that far away from New York. Yeah, I, I I think that when you really start to analyze these guys, and even on the Charlie Ward book, when it's like, okay, wait, so you were just a college kid, and then you go drafted by the Knicks, like, what is that? I mean, you're in Tallahassee, like, anybody just moving from Tallahassee to New York City is a pretty big culture shock, but you're going from, like, Tallahassee College to, like, the New York Knicks, like, where do you live? Like, what's the, where do you eat? Like, what's the day-to-day -day like? And um, that stuff with Macho, because the wrestlers just traveled so much, you realize like it's easy to just passingly say like, oh, they were in Poughkeepsie for three months. And it's like, all right. Oh, but then wait a minute. Where how, where were you living in Poughkeepsie? Where were you eating? Where were you working out? What were you doing there? Or like I found a passing thing with Macho where it was like, yeah, he got a place on Staten Island just because he was always flying through there and he wanted a little place to stay. And it's like, okay, wait, how long did he stay there? What did he do? Where did he go? And his, I found a really cool story from the local paper about how he went gym shopping, like basically and called all these gyms and worked out at these gyms to see which one he liked best and then found an apartment close to the gym, not just a nice place. Um, like that's the stuff where when you look at like, what would I do as an adult in this situation? That's how those questions come up. So um, before I let you go, cause I mean, you've been more than generous with your time and I know yeah. we've like, I typically do we've gone, we've gone over, but <laughs> that's fine. Um, I was hoping maybe you could let people know uh, the best way, a couple of things to keep track of you, because I know you have books and biceps, but also the book, because the book yes. comes out in the spring, but you can already pre-order it, right? Yeah. So um, anyone listening who's on Twitter at John J O N underscore Finkel F I N K E L is where I have all my kind of I post there. Same uh, same tag on Instagram as well. Uh, but the best way to get any updates on on me or anything is books and biceps. I do a lot of giveaways, a lot of uh, covers of the you know stickers of the cover, a lot of hologram. I have cool stickers of the Macho Man cover. I give away books and biceps stuff too. But I have a couple really cool giveaways for macho as we get closer um you know 
sample paragraphs coming up, like chapters and things like that, or behind the scenes stuff. So uh, Books and Biceps, if you just go to my website, it's uh, johnfinkel.com. You can sign up for anything you want there. But for anyone looking to get into it, yeah, pre-order it now. Uh, anyone who pre-orders, I'm just having them send me like a, a DM of the screenshot on any way, either reply to the email or on Twitter. And I'm sending these, uh, they're really cool, like hologram, like silver holograms of the cover that we have. But I also have other, like, we're going to keep upping the ante as we get closer and closer to the book, which comes out in April, WrestleMania week, which is awesome. I saw that. And I saw those little like miniature cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. things. It's very cool. Uh, for everybody listening, John is very good at social media and online <laughs> marketing and self-promotion. He is an inspiration to people like me uh, who who are trying to catch up. Listen, but... always be hustling. The books don't <laughs> right. sell themselves. No, you're right, especially in the you know in in today's uh, age, you know, getting people to read. Right? It's like you have to you have well, to do all these tricks. That's what books and biceps is. It's uh, right? we just had a big uh, the New Yorker of all places just ran like a big feature on on books and biceps and myself, and it was uh, like called the meathead trying to get other meatheads to read. And it's like that's my, that's a mission. Let's do that. And if, <laughs> if you're if you're gonna read the Macho Man book, is a great place to start for my fellow meatheads. There you go. And you know, I think that's it's funny wrestling books are one of the the very few of those little niches where they're still super popular i mean every year there's a couple yeah. of books that come out that that do well it's still a thing that people are enjoy reading about you know for yeah. and and this is a good one too because and then I'll, I'll i'll let you go but i mean it's like you have the andre book right you have um i'm i i tried now to do a book on somebody who really has that cultural cachet like there aren't a lot of people from the past you could easily you want to do a book about roman reigns or somebody or chris yeah. jericho but to find somebody from wrestling's past who still has that pop culture currency is oh, not yeah. an easy thing to do and randy savage is on that list they're, he's yeah, just there there are other what i look at them as like they're you know books like this are like they're like uh you know undiscovered territory like you got to plant your flag and so um, when we originally were doing all this stuff and you're picking the dates for the book come out, you've gone through all this stuff. Like you're now that we're close, I can almost like breathe a sigh of relief. Like nobody else is doing a macho man book, but like there's this, this so, you know, you have no idea if in parallel to this, cause I'm, I'm very visible partly because it's like, you know, like a dog in a territory, you know, like marking their territory. Like I'm doing this book. I don't, I used to be like, you don't say anything, right? Like you don't say anything until it's going to come out. Like it's just, you let people know. But right. then I have some author friends who are like, yeah, but if it's a known person or event, you got to let people know you're doing it or someone else could easily par you know, have a parallel project going on. And it's happened to a few friends that I know with, you know, uh, you know, pro athletes. And all of a sudden now it's like, you're both canceling each other. I would rather know it might, it would suck, but that someone's doing the same thing and I back off or they do or whatever, or maybe we have two different, completely different angles on the subject um than the other way but yeah it's it's uh it was it was lucky i always felt like i would be uh you know a great person to write the book and that was kind of what my pitch to lanny was like you know why i started with like why me well here i'm gonna tell you why me i'm like i have the receipts i have the pictures of me dressed as macho as a kid you know playing with wwe figures and like doing the impression on vhs tapes from 1987 like I, not many people, I think, have like the actual biography background and then like the die hard. I still do yeah to my kids every day, like, you know, combination. So, um, you know, and the journalism side, too, because it's not it's very like we cover all aspects, good and bad of Randy. And unfortunately, with it, you know, there were some some troubling areas, but uh, we do all of it. 
There always is, you know, and you've got to you've got to be fair. And but but there is something to be said for getting the chance to write about somebody that you really love or enjoy or admire. Somebody that you have very positive feelings for is a good feeling. That so. and I think having a having a familiarity from the time and place of what they meant really matters. I think it'd be very hard for someone maybe 10 or 15 years younger than us who wasn't into him in his heyday to really appreciate what he meant. You could easily dismiss it as almost silly if you were, you know, maybe 30 and just can't, you know, grew up way after him and never saw it, never cared, didn't understand what it meant with the mega powers or any of these things. Um, and so I think there's a responsibility to whoever was going to write it, to have lived through the era uh, for someone like this, um, as opposed to looking back only. Well, you check off that box and it's certainly, you know, like you said, there's no replacement for that. I'm trying to bring that to at least the later part of the Gorilla book when I remember him from the announcing years. So um, it should be interesting. And I'm hoping maybe when the book comes out in the spring, I'd like to have you back. And I'd love it. Follow yeah. up. But the name of the book again for everybody listening is I'll get it right this time. <laughs> Macho Man, The Untamed, Unbelievable Life of Randy Savage. By John Finkel. John, thanks again so much for doing the show. Uh, dig it. There you have it, folks. My conversation with John Finkel. I hope you enjoyed that. Kind of a talk between two wrestling authors, two wrestling biographers. Looking forward to checking out John's book. Pick it up. Of course, you can pre-order it now. Remember to check out John using the contact information that he mentioned in the interview. And thank you, John, so much for taking time out to be a part of Shut Up and Wrestle. And I'm glad that you also are a part of Shut Up and Wrestle. And please do keep listening. As I mentioned at the top of the show, my plan for episode 103, next week's episode, is going to be a talk about the Iron Claw with film critic, filmmaker, and wrestling fan BJ Colangelo. I am hoping you have that interview completed by next week's episode. Now, beyond that, we've also got a lot of other great guests coming up on the way. From the pages of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Kristen Ashley will be here for a talk about women's wrestling. Roy Lucier, the well-known Japanese and Lucha Libre wrestling aficionado, will be a guest of mine, as well as the wrestling author and biographer Steve Johnson, a prolific, prolific writer and journalist. Looking forward to talking to him. So where can you find our show? Of course, there's our website, suawpod.com. You can also find it wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podbean, all the usual places. While you're at it, join our Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. And if you're looking to contribute to the show to make a contribution, on my Twitter page, Brian R. Solomon, my Twitter account, you will find a contribution button where you can contribute using Cash App or using Venmo. If you prefer to contribute using PayPal, you can find me at Brian R. Solomon at Yahoo.com. And I thank everybody for their support. Other projects that I work on the wrestling news every morning from Arcadian Vanguard. Check it out at the wrestlingnews.com or you can find it at Arcadian Vanguard's YouTube page. My books, Blood and Fire, The Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Chic. That's right, the book that you've heard me talking about a lot 
during this week's episode. You can pick that up wherever books are sold. I also have autographed copies available. If you're interested, reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com. And the same goes for my other new book, Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Get it at pwi-online.com. The new issue, the March issue with Tony Storm on the cover, still on sale. Inside the Ropes, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you can get it at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can also find me on Facebook, where my author page is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author page on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. So long, wrestling fans. Hey,